My name's Luke. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Life Church. Um, and uh, this morning, we're looking at God is Father, Son, and Spirit. We're going to look at what that means. We're going to dive into a lot of scripture. And we're going to see that knowing that God is Trinity is not an academic exercise. This is not something for the Bible boffins among us to get het up over, but that there is good news knowing who our God is. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah 40. Um, Otherwise, it should be on the screens. Um, If you see Oliver Needham after, who's doing visuals, he often does it. I've given him a real roller coaster of um, PowerPoint presentation this week with loads of verses. Uh, So bless him after because I've uh, sent it to him about a day ago and uh, it's probably hard to follow. But if you have Isaiah 40, we're going to read together. This, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places are plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The prophet Isaiah, some six, seven hundred years before Jesus was born in Nazareth, Bethlehem. Oh, I got it wrong already but none of you corrected me, interesting. No, um, some 700 years before, the prophet Isaiah wrote this to a context where God's people had been rejecting him year after year, generation after generation. And God had promised from the beginning, if this is your stance, then at some point I will have to tell you, you have to leave my presence. Go out of the promised land and not be able to come to the temple and worship me. Isaiah prophesies in this context of deep division between God and his people. And this is his message. Comfort, comfort my people and prepare the way for Yahweh. Prepare the way for the Lord, the God of Israel. Isaiah essentially prophesied, your God will return. So if Uh, You have read uh, the Gospels before. Um, Some of you will be familiar with that passage. And you'll be familiar because actually each of the four Gospels, the four accounts of Jesus's life, have Isaiah 40 quoted very early on in their accounts. Why? Because the Gospel authors see that the fulfilment of this prophecy came in the story they told. Why don't we take um, Mark's Gospel for an example? Mark chapter one says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. He quotes it. And then he goes on. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here we see Isaiah's prophecy. And the gospel author Mark says, look, John is that messenger. John is the guy who wears camel hair and eats locusts in the wilderness and he's declaring the message that Isaiah foretold. But John is a messenger and the prophecy doesn't say make way for the messenger. The prophecy says messenger declare 
our God is coming back. Mark tells us a bit about John the Baptist for a few verses, but the point isn't Mark. Uh, sorry, the point isn't John the Baptist. The point is the one he's preparing the way for. Mark, in verse nine, just a few verses later, after declaring this prophecy is about to come to fulfillment, says this, in those days, Jesus. Prepare the way for the Lord, he just quoted. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Yahweh has returned to his people. Isaiah prophesied it. John declared it. And what do we see? We see Jesus Christ standing in the Jordan with the Spirit of God descending on him and the voice of the Father speaking affirmation over him. The God of Israel has come back to his people. The God of the universe has come to us. And who is he? He's Father, Son and Spirit. He is Father, Son and Spirit. That's our sermon this morning. God is Father, Son and Spirit. He is the eternal Father who has the eternal Son, who together have always existed in the fellowship of the eternal Holy Spirit. And this is who God is. This isn't a part of him. This isn't just an aspect of his nature. This isn't just a way to perceive or describe God. No, God being Father, Son and Spirit is his foundational nature. We'll use the word Trinity a number of times this morning and you may or may not be familiar with that word, but that word just tries to capture this idea that we have one God who is Father, Son and Spirit. It's quite a simple word actually. Unity, tr Trinity, tri-unity. Unity just means one. Tri is like a triangle, it means three. So Trinity just tries to capture that idea. God is three and he's one. And what we'll see today is that the Bible clearly testifies that this is God's essential nature. The scripture teaches we worship only one God. There is no other. And yet somehow he's revealed as Father, Son and Spirit. Each fully distinct, each fully God, but one in substance and will. And the doctrine of the Trinity is the way that we hold these truths of scripture together. It's not something we've tried to add on to make sense of it. It's saying, no, when we hold the truths of Scripture together in our hands, this is what comes out. This is what we see. But it is a doctrine, if we're honest, that blows our mind. It's beyond what we can fully understand. And that's not really surprising when we're talking about the nature of God. But nonetheless, it is exactly what the Bible reveals. And it's crucial that we go to scripture to understand these things. Because as Dan showed us last week, if we try and understand who God is based on anything but his revelation, what we end up doing is we project ourselves or another created thing and start to worship a God who is no God at all. Oh, did I bring the good God? I brought a prop with me. You know I'm bad with props. If you were here at the first service we did when we were back at the TDA, I always forget props. Um, there's a really good book. It's called The Good Gods by um, Michael Reeves. I read it about seven, eight years ago. Great introduction to um, the Holy Trinity, to God being Father, Son and Spirit. Um, it is short. 
It has big fonts uh, and it has pictures, okay? It's a great book, really, really well written. Um, and I found it immensely valuable. It's not, it is not dry. It is so um, wonderful. But what Mike Reeves says in that book, he's, he, he lectures, he teaches, um, he says, in my own experience, talking with non-Christian students again and again, I found that when they describe the God they don't believe in, he sounds more like Satan than the loving father of Jesus Christ. Greedy, selfish, trigger happy, entirely devoid of love. And if God is not Father, Son and Spirit, aren't they right? This morning, this is not an academic exercise. And that quote hints at why it is. Because knowing who God is in his very nature underpins everything about his character, his power, his love, his unique role as creator, his role as judge, his total knowledge and sovereignty, his self-sufficiency is all underpinned by his nature as father, son and spirit. Our God is Trinity. And that really, really matters. Okay, so I'm gonna dive into the Bible. Are people feeling ready? People feeling warmed up? No? Well, too late. We're going in. We're going to open our Bible together. And, and unfortunately, for those of you who follow Jesus, or, or if you don't and you're wanting to explore this morning and, and you're a visitor among us, you're so welcome. We're so pleased you're here. Um, but I'm going to burst a few people's bubbles. This is the Bible. Unfortunately, it is not a theology textbook. It does not lay out points one, two, three about what we should believe in some systematised, neat order. Instead... It is a beautiful tapestry of stories and accounts, poems, laws, family, histories, parables, and much, much true gods that exists. Beautifully compelling picture of the God, the one true God that exists and his relationship to his people. And so while I'd love to reference page 154 and section B, this morning what we need to do instead is immerse ourselves in the scriptures and see that from beginning to the end, sometimes in hints, sometimes in big brash statements, that our God is Father, Son, and Spirit. We'll only skim the surface this morning, but it's there. So this isn't just a New Testament thing. We're gonna start very deliberately in the Old Testament because I think right from page one of the Bible, it's clear that we have a complex God who is not easy to be understood in the categories we would like to fit him into. Let's look at page one of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 26a. I see a few of you flicking. If you keep up, I'll be impressed. So I have put it on the screens. Um, Genesis 1, 26a. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Straight away, this peculiar use of plural pronouns hints at a complex nature of God. Now, some do suggest Maybe God was speaking to the angels there, some kind of divine counsel maybe. I hear that, but two things. One, God didn't make us in the image of angels. He made us in his image. Secondly, um, even the earliest Christians, the, what are often called the, the church fathers who wrote very early on, they looked at verses like this and they said, that is a glimpse into the mystery of God's nature. That is a glimpse into the Trinity. And so, is that really clear? No, but it's a hint on page one. Then we have Psalms like Psalm 110, which point to one who is both distinct from God 
and yet has a quality of status with God. Beautiful psalm. It starts like this. The Lord, which I think I put it on here. Yeah, it's capitalised Lord. In your Bible, that's where they've replaced the, the name of God, Yahweh. They've replaced that with Lord for reverence. That's a whole other rabbit hole. We're not going down this morning. Um, but Yahweh said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, who wrote this psalm? The great King David, the greatest king in all of Israel's history. And he describes two characters here. First one we all know is Yahweh, the Lord, capital Lord. And the second one is someone that King David calls Lord, calls master. David is speaking here about his God and yet another who seems to be distinct from God who sits at his right hand. Now you might think, Luke, you're being niche. You're just digging into minutiae here. Jesus knew that this was a psalm which boggled the mind of his fellow Jews. In Matthew 22, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees about whose son the Messiah is. They reply to him, the obvious answer, he's David's son. He's, you know, a king in the line of David. And Jesus then says to them, well, explain to me Psalm 110 then. And they scratch their heads and they can't because Jesus said, how can he be the son of David if David calls him master? This is a hint that there is one who is both equal with God in status, authority and dignity, and yet somehow distinct. It's another hint that there is a complexity in the nature of God. Now we could keep going with this. We can look at Psalm 45. We can look at the servant songs in Isaiah. We can look at the appearances of the angel of the Lord who seems to speak with the authority of Yahweh and accept things that only Yahweh is allowed to accept and yet somehow distinct. But all these things that we don't have time to go into today, but are there littered through the Old Testament, they point to one who is both God himself and yet somehow distinct. What they point to is Christ. What they point to is the one who would come, who is the second person of the Trinity, who is equal in dignity with the Father, equal in deity and sovereignty with the Father, and yet is a distinct person. And it's not just Christ, but many places in the Old Testament point to the Holy Spirit as well. Passages like Isaiah 48 verse 16. This is one of the famous servant songs. The end of Isaiah uh, are these beautiful prophecies about a servant who would come. A servant who would come and it turns out is the great Messiah who would save the people of God. And so in these servant songs, the servant says, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. There seems to be a distinct category that the Spirit is put in. The Spirit isn't just a part of God in some kind of component way, but there is a distinctness, a person in his own right. Or similarly, a bit later, Isaiah 63 verse 10, it says the Holy Spirit is grieved. A component of us cannot be grieved. And yet the Holy Spirit, it starts to become clear, is in a category of equality with God, and yet in some way distinct. And so that's a little whistle-stop tour through the Old Testament, where we see that although it's not clear the doctrine of Father, Son and Spirit, it is clear that there are a lot of unanswered questions to the complex nature of who God is. We cannot put him in a box. We cannot simply say he is like us, because there are so many things that point to something more. 
things that actually only start to make sense when Christ comes. And so we come to the New Testament where things start to get a little bit more clear. Actually, there's some parts which are crystal clear. We have all these Trinitarian statements throughout the New Testament that are just in our face. Think of Jesus in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. What does he say? He says this, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You think of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his second one, where he ends it with this blessing, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. That wasn't a test to get the ones who had grown up in traditional church to say it along with me, by the way. I don't know, most of you are like, what are you talking about? That's something you say a lot. I grew up in a more traditional church. 1 Peter 1 verse 1, he starts his, his first letter like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, he then lists some places, and then he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. The New Testament is littered with these little statements of Trinitarian theology. But think about the words of Jesus as well. Think about how he spoke of the Father and of the Spirit. Again, we don't have time to go into all that Jesus said, but let's just look at John's gospel for a moment together. In John 10, Jesus, debating with the Pharisees about whether or not he's the Messiah, says to them, I and the Father are one. Now, you might think, is that that controversial? Isn't he just saying, you know, we're, we're really close? Well, I'll tell you how controversial it was. What does the next verse say? It said the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. What Jesus was very deliberately doing there was saying, no, there is an equality in status between me and the Father. If Jesus was lying... It was awful, despicable blasphemy. But if he was telling the truth, then he and the Father truly are one. And so we see that Jesus spoke of himself as fully God, as one with the Father. Think again of John 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? In other words, Jesus is saying, no, actually, you know, you look at me and you can see the Father because we are perfectly united. John 17, 24, this is one of the most profound passages in the whole of the New Testament, especially in understanding this topic. Father, I desire that they also, it's actually Jesus praying for us, they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me. And hear this, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ did not come into existence 2,000 years ago. He is the eternal son of the Father. Preeminent in glory, he has been existent and God forever. Eternity past to eternity future. But look as well at how Jesus speaks about the Spirit. Back in John 14, Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commands and I'll ask the Father and he will give you another helper. He's talking about the Holy Spirit there and those chapters unpack who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. 
But Jesus really interestingly says another helper. In other words, one who is like him. Jesus looks at the Trinity and he said, uh, looks at the Holy Spirit and he says, God is going to send you one like me. A little bit later on in John 16, all still John's gospel, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, I don't know about you, but if you had been one of the disciples walking with the Lord for three years and he says to you, it's better that I go away, but I'm going to send you some, uh, some helpful force that will kind of encourage you a bit. I'd say, no, stay with me. You're wrong. It's not better that you go. But if the Holy Spirit is God himself, then of course Jesus can say, it's better that I go because then the Holy Spirit will dwell with all of us. All of the people of God, the Holy Spirit will be poured out on. He looked forward to the day of Pentecost and said, actually, it's going to be so good. It will be like I am with you all in beautiful unity with his people because the Holy Spirit will be poured out. The eternal Spirit of God, that third person of the Trinity, Jesus spoke of as one who was like him and one that it would be better that he's poured out because then he could be with all the people of God. Jesus spoke of the, of the Holy Spirit on an equal status with himself and with great dignity and authority. The doctrine of the Trinity holds the full breadth of scriptural truth about the nature of God together, that we worship one God. Father, Son, and Spirit, and that this isn't just an aspect of him, not just a way of describing him, but is his foundational nature. Now, we've just scratched the surface of some of those scriptures today. You've got to dig a lot deeper to see all the fullness of it, but it is there. It is there. But now, as I said before, we've got to be honest with ourselves, and lots of this is beyond our understanding, isn't it? Lots of this baffles the mind. And when truths of scripture do really jar with us or are really hard to comprehend, it can be easy to dismiss them. It can be easy either to explicitly dismiss them or to live in such a way that we don't really believe it. But if we base our understanding on anything but who God says he is in the scriptures, then the God we worship is a different God and is no God at all. Some people might hear that God is three distinct persons and say, how can that be? How can there be one God and three at the same time? Maybe Father, Son and Spirit are just three different names for God. Maybe they're just three different roles that God plays. Someone might use the analogy who says, look, they're a bit like you, Luke. Uh, you are a husband to your wife. Uh, you're a son of your parents, you're a pastor of a church. And so you have three different roles. And on a Sunday morning, you put your pastor hat on. Not that I have a pastor hat, but that would be fun. On, uh, uh, on a Friday evening, when you're having dinner with your wife, you put your husband hat on. And when you go home for Christmas, you get to be the son hat again, or you get to wear a son hat again. You say, no, 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 you know, it's not that you're three people. It's, not, it's just you have three different roles. Let me tell you, that is not like God at all. That is not what God is like at all. That at one moment he's the father and then he changes gear to be the son and then later he needs to be the spirit so he could be with the people of God. He's not like some kind of advanced transformer toy who just changes into the mode he needs to be for what he's doing right now. No, that is not the case at all. 
Why? Because Scripture is clear, the Father, Son and Spirit are working together the whole time. All of them are present, working on their single purpose together the whole time. And think about it. If the Son, which we are promised in Scripture that He is, if the Son is interceding for us, isn't it terrifying if He has to suddenly change to be the Spirit so He can comfort a believer? Does the Son stop interceding for us? No. Does the Spirit ever stop being with His people? No. This is a falsehood. We do not believe that God just changes masks in order to serve different purposes. That doesn't explain the complexity of the Trinity. Well, someone might say then, look, it's still blowing my mind. Uh, if there are distinct persons, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but you're telling me there's one God, well, then surely Father God is proper God, and then maybe Jesus is kind of sort of God. But that's not what Scripture says at all either. Many people have kind of suggested that over the many centuries of the church, but, but the church have time and again have pointed to Scriptures and said, no, that's not true. Colossians 2 verse 9, for in Christ... It says him, but the context is Christ. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This isn't part of God in Christ. It's the full, the fullness of deity. Or Ephesians 2, in him you've also, sorry, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If God says to you, I'm going to come hang out with you, but I'm actually going to send a friend instead, you'd say, you'd know, God, you said you'd be with me. I don't want your friend. But if the Spirit is God himself, then God can say to you, I will be with you by the Spirit. And that is God with us. No, it's not right to say that Father God is proper God and Jesus and the Spirit are kind of super beings, but they're, they're not him. As in somehow they're not one God. No, that is wrong as well. Well, maybe exasperated, the person trying to get their mind around these things says, look, you've told me that you only have one God, fine, uh, fine. But clearly, you have three gods because they're three distinct people. If I'm going to take the three distinct people, then, then surely they're three separate gods. Maybe they're like triplet twins. No, triplet, identical triplets. That's the phrase I'm looking for. Identical triplets. They all look the same. They all share DNA. They're all in the same family. In lots of ways, you can say they're one, but we all know that they have different desires and live different lives and maybe they you know, marry different people. Or, you know. So in some ways they're one, but they're clearly three different separate beings. Let me tell you, my dear brothers and sisters, our God is not like that. Our God is not three separate gods. Now you might be saying to me, Luke, of course he's not three separate gods. We never said he was three separate gods. But sometimes we live like this. Sometimes we live as if we have three separate gods. Do we avoid thinking about God the Father? Because we sometimes worry that he's the mean and judgmental one and we'd rather think of the Son, as if somehow they were separate. Or maybe we love that God is Father and that feels so safe and comforting, but it's a bit awkward that Jesus had to die for my sins and so I don't think of that area. And In other words, do we sometimes live out with a kind of assumed belief that the Father, Son and Spirit maybe have subtly different agendas from one another? I think we can slip into that. Or maybe have different levels of importance or different levels of care for us. But it's a massive mistake because our God is one. The famous Jewish prayer in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We don't have three. We have one God. And that is good news for us that he is in one substance, 
and that he has one will. Do you know that in the Godhead, in Father, Son and Spirit, there has never been a disagreement. They have never had to discuss things to make sure they're on the same page. They have never had to debate things or apologise to one another because their unity of will, they have one will and they are perfect in unity. And so we don't come to a God who we're worried, oh, which one should I speak to? We come to a unified God who loves and cares for us. For those of you who, um, some of you will think this is just a wacky old poem, but I wanted to read this poem. Um, This is a poem by... um, a wacky old guy. No, by Frederick W. Faber. Um, I, don't, I don't really know him, but it was quoted in a book by A.W. Tozer, which um, Dan quoted last week. It's a really good book on the Trinity. And this is the wonderful um, poem. And it's about the communication within the Godhead, Father, Son and Spirit before creation. Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> that just melts my mind even trying to think about it. This is what it says. Amid the eternal silences... None heard but he who always spake, and the silence was unbroken. O marvellous, O worshipful, no song or sound is heard. But everywhere and every hour, in love, in wisdom and in power, the Father speaks his dear eternal word. The Father never had to discuss or negotiate with the Son or the Spirit. And yet he, for all eternity, has been speaking the word of God as in the Son of God. He has been beautifully pouring out his love onto the eternal Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And we see these beautiful truths come together in the most significant moments of history. We could look at creation and see how the three persons of the Godhead work in that, but we don't have time. Um, I actually started writing life group notes for it. I thought it'd be a fun exercise, and then I remembered life groups hadn't started yet. So you missed out on a good one there. Um, That was a waste of time for me. But anyway, I enjoyed the exercise. Um, But let's look at how Father, Son, and Spirit work in salvation. Again, it's a whistle-stop tour, but it's beautiful to see. What's the most famous verse that you probably got quoted at many, many times if you've been in church for more than a day or two? John 3.16, God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way that he sent his one and only son. Do you know the father loves you? Do you know the father saw the pitiful, sinful state of, of humanity and he made a plan? God so loved us that he sent God the son. God the son who Philippians 2 tells us, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. God, the eternal son, equal in status with the Father, fully God, became man for us, humbled himself to obedience by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, and then rose from the dead so that reconciliation might happen between us and God. And Jesus said, just before he ascended to heaven, he reminded the disciples, don't worry, I will send you God, the Holy Spirit. And so the Father and Son poured out the Spirit in the day of Pentecost in a way that the world had never seen before, that God's people might finally be united with the Father in a way that Christ had made possible. You see the Father's heart to make a plan for this. Christ came and made a way for it and the Spirit brought us into the fullness of all that Christ accomplished. And that's just the highlights of what happened in salvation. That's not even every single moment you see the, the Father and the Son speaking together. You see the Spirit empowering the Son. You see it again and again and again. But this is our God. 
one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, distinct in role, but united in purpose, desire, and action. Uh, as we come to an end, and I realise that this is, it's been a lot of scripture, this has been a lot of um, information, and this has probably raised uh, as many or more questions than you may have started with. You may have thought, I'd just rather not think about it, and maybe it will all go away. But I promise you this is good news. And I want to draw out just two things that I think are particularly good news for this. First is this. Don't be too shocked. God does not need you. Did you know that? God does not need you. He did not need to create us. There was not some kind of, uh, I have to. And that's good news for us. And, and I'll explain how that links to the Trinity. We've heard that God is love. The Bible tells us. But what is love? A love is a giving of ourselves to another. Yeah, that's kind of fundamentally what love is. We could quibble about the exact definition, but it involves giving of ourselves to another. We know that you can't love without another person because the person who just loves themselves, we don't call loving, we call self-centered, yeah? And so to love is to give of oneself to another. Now, if you stop to think about before creation, which was not eternal, God created at one point, before creation, how was God love? How was God love before creation? Now we'll look at how the Trinity shows us he was loved, but just think about if he wasn't Trinity for a moment. Well, maybe he wasn't love. And it was only when there was something to love that he became loving. Well, that's a big problem, isn't it? We don't want a God who can change. We don't want a God who one day wasn't loving and today is loving. No, that's not our God. He does not change. Well, you might say uh, he always loved creation then. He always loved creation then, but that's a problem too, because if he always loved creation, in a sense then he needed creation. If, he, if he's always loved creation, then he needed creation. And I'll tell you that's problematic for this reason. We all know really needy people. If we're honest, we are all really needy people. And when we're needy, we actually love people to get what we want. That's what happens when we're needy. We love people to get what we want. Let me tell you, we do not have a God who is needy. God does not need you. And that means we can be sure that he does not love you because he's trying to get something from you. No, before the foundation of the world, the son was loved by the father. In the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, because God is Trinity, we look at him and we know he is self-sufficient. There is nothing he needs. And because of that, we know that he made us out of an outflowing of his love. A total confidence in that. That might feel a bit logical and philosophical, but, but these are the things we draw out. That because of who he is at his very nature, we can have great confidence that he is the God who loves us. And that's why he made us. There's no ulterior motive. And you will see many different sermons this time about who God is. And if God is not Father, Son and Spirit, we have no confidence in any of them, I'll be honest with you. And that's why every week as preachers, we're going to come back to Christ to show, look, actually, no, it's in Christ we most gloriously see this truth come about because it's only when we know that he is Father, Son and Spirit that we really see every uh, beautiful detail of his character. But here's the second thing that I think is, is, is helpful as we end. When we start speaking 
Trinitarian language, when we start praying Trinitarian prayers, when we start singing Trinitarian songs, we'll start to notice that our language will align with beautiful truths about God. And when our language aligns with beautiful truths about God, our thinking changes. Our thinking changes. And so on the days we look to God and we say, Father, you are so distant. Where are you right now? We can go in our hearts through that process of saying, but Father, you sent the Son to me. And scripture tells me he is the image of the invisible God. You're not hidden, you made yourself known. And more than that, you sent your Holy Spirit that we would not be separate from you, but we would be the dwelling place of you. And then we can turn to the Father in our hearts and say, Father, you are not distant after all. Or in our hearts when we say, Father, you're almighty creator. And I'm terrified of you, to be honest. I can't come close to you, to be honest. We remember that the Father sent the Son, the only Son of the Father, that he might be our great high priest, that he can make a way for us to come to the almighty one. And that the Holy Spirit is the one uh, who groans, intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. And we can declare in our hearts, our almighty Father, terrifying in glory, yet you have made a way that I can know you intimately and safely. And when we say, Father, Father, you're perfect and I'm wicked. I have no hope. We praise the Lord because he sent Christ, the only son of the Father, to take our place and take our punishment. And he sent the Holy Spirit to take us in our worthless sinful, pitiful states, in states that we're told were death and the Spirit has made us alive to God. And we go around these things and we realise when we start to pray to who God truly is, one God, Father, Son and Spirit, that we start to know truly and deeply, wow, he really is who he says he is. The doctrine of the Trinity matters. It's thoroughly biblical. Indeed, it is how the whole breadth of scripture about God's nature is held together. And it is thoroughly good news. And today we have only scratched the surface, but it underpins everything about his character. And as we end this tour, this very rapid tour around the doctrine of the Trinity, I pray that each one of us will know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And as we begin our time of worship and as the band um, jumps up and uh, starts to play, we're going to take communion together. And we're going to remember Jesus' death for us. A beautiful act where we worship God the Son. And we come to verses like Ephesians 2 verse 18, which tells us, for through Christ, through him, we both... as talking about Jew and Gentile in the context, but all of us it means. For through Christ, all of us have access in one spirit to the Father. Christ has made a way that we might be reconciled to the Father. The Spirit has enacted all that Christ has done deep within us. And so now we take this meal. For those of you who know and love and follow Jesus, this is a meal for you. Uh, This is a meal we take as believers to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as the band starts to play, Let's just take a moment in our hearts and come before our God, Father, Son, and Spirit and thank him and remember all that he's done. Amen.